Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. There are many faces of American icon Jane Fonda. She's movie legend Henry Fonda's daughter, a two-time Academy Award-winning actress, an outspoken activist, a famous wife, the best-selling fitness expert of all time, and author of five books that have sold millions. Jane's personal life has been an open book. I've admired her for always speaking so candidly about bulimia, sex, aging, plastic surgery. Tonight on Next Chapter, Jane reveals yet another side, one very few in the public know about, Jane Fonda's first ever interview with her African-American daughter, Mary. In 1967, Jane Fonda started making the cult film Barbarella. The Vietnam War was raging, and the summer of love was in full swing. That same year, a baby named Mary Lawana Williams was born in the toughest, poorest area of Oakland, California. Mary was the fifth of six children. Her parents were both active members of the militant Black Panther movement. Within her family and neighborhood, Mary was surrounded by drugs, prostitution, teen pregnancy, and alcoholism. In 1979, Mary's uncle Landon, her father's brother, noticed that Mary was neglected by her family. He feared for her safety in Oakland. He enrolled 11-year-old Mary in Laurel Springs Summer Camp, a performing arts retreat created by Jane Fonda and her then-husband, Tom Hayden. During the several summers Mary spent at Laurel Springs, she and Jane became close. Sensing something special in Mary, Jane wanted to save her from a bleak future. With no fanfare, no press release, no paparazzi photos, Jane Fonda opened her home and started to raise Mary as her daughter. It's been almost 30 years now, and Jane is still mom to Mary. Tonight on Next Chapter, I stop by Jane's gorgeous Beverly Hills home to meet Mary and to hear their remarkable mother-daughter story. Hi! I'm at Jane's house. Look at you! So beautiful. Oh, so oh. Are you. Thank you. And you know Mary. Hi, Hi Mary. Hi, how are you? Big hug, big hug. Yes, big absolutely. Hug. Big hug. Hi. Oh. I'm excited. Yay. Going upstairs. Going up. Going yeah. up. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, this is all very modernized. Yes. 
This is beautiful, Miss Fonda. Really is. How are we arranged? Am I sitting? I think you're here. I'm here. Okay. Lulu, you're here. I'm here. You're the Lulu, Lawan. I quickly notice friends and family call Mary by her nickname, <laughs> Lulu. Well, I have to say, this is your first interview, actually, with your daughter. Yes! <laughs> Most of the world didn't even know that you had Mary as a daughter. Well, it's not that I've kept it a secret. No. Mm -hmm. no. But during the time that Mary came into my life and then during a yeah. chunk of... I was under the radar, right? right I mean, right. then I was with Ted and... Right. And there was a time whenever we would go to a black tie event, I would never want to do the red carpet or... Mm. You know, I, I kind of shied away from those moments where... So you never be... thought that she was, like, hiding you? No. No. no, no, no. And you were never hiding her? It's just no. something you didn't talk about? Yeah. First of all, let me just say, you do such a beautiful job in The Lost Daughter. It's Thank such you. a beautiful Thank job. You. By the time I finished, I have to tell you, I had a reckoning with myself about my own family because we have so many similarities. Yes. And your reconciling right. is a part of what I was trying to do. In her memoir, The Lost Daughter, Mary vividly recounts her tumultuous childhood in East Oakland. Mary's parents were very involved members of the Black Panther Party. It was considered an extremist group formed in the late 60s to fight police brutality against African Americans. Mary attended the Black Panthers Elementary School. Her father spent most of Mary's childhood in prison for his role in a shootout with police. Mary writes that her mother was cold and indifferent to her. There's a time in the book where you, you described your mother as being joyless with having children and that she was doing it out of a sense of duty. And I have to tell you, my whole life I've been looking for what the word was that I felt for my mother, and that is the word. Yes. yes. That is the word, out of a yes. sense of duty. What was life like at home with your mother at the time? Can you describe it for yeah. us as you have right. here? Yeah. Um, my mother was drinking very heavily. Mm -hmm. And she was also a very angry person. Mm -hmm. And it was unbearable. I, I knew that she couldn't stand the sight of me or having me around. And I think as we got older, she had this sense of duty to feed us and house us. Mm -hmm. But I think that's kind of where it, where it ended. And as soon as we got older, she just wanted us out. And I knew she wanted us out. And she would tell me, I want you out. Mary's way out came through her uncle Landon. He was an officer in the Black Panther Party, a group the FBI called at the time the greatest threat to the nation's internal security. Landon knew Jane Fonda through her work with the Panthers. When Jane invited kids from Oakland to her children's camp at Laurel Springs, Uncle Landon sent his niece Mary. Like Jane, Landon calls his niece by her nickname, Lulu. As I think back on, on the impact of Laurel Springs on, on Lulu's life, I think fundamentally it changed her life completely. Jane took time on one-on-one -on -one with Lulu to talk to her about, you know, what it meant to grow up to be a young woman. So you all, you had gone to camp, mm -hmm. Santa Barbara. Yep. Little black girl in a family of Black Panthers. Yes. And you meet Jane Fonda. Yes, I saw her at the at the at the camp, and I knew she was famous. I think she was probably one of the most famous actresses at the time, mm -hmm. um, and that was exciting. But I think the whole experience, being outside of Oakland for the first time, being around so many different people, white people in general, it was a cultural shift and and just a little bit of culture shock. Being around people who could see me, 
Mm -hmm. I mean, really see me and talk to me and inquired about me and opened me up to new things. And it was um, terrifying at first, mm -hmm. but then I just embraced it and I, I ran with it. Uh, explain what you mean when you say when people could really see me, yeah. because you would think that in your community, mm -hmm. in your in neighborhood, in your family, mm -hmm. that that is the place where you would be most seen. Not when you go to a camp in the hills of Santa Barbara. Tell me what you mean by being seen. That's good. I think being in, in the family that I was in, being the young one of the youngest, I was number five in a group of six, you can get lost. And so I was kind of lost in my house and, and grown folks business and grown folks talk. I mean, I was kind of shunted out of a lot of interactions uh, with adults just because kids don't, Absolutely. don't have that relationship. I know, I couldn't believe you. It's the same life. Yes, yeah. I was, I was, I was raised in the children are seen and not heard. Yes. So your yes. opinions don't matter. Yes. Shut up. Yeah. Yes. So not being seen in that sense, and then um, uh, as I developed um, after puberty, you know, being seen in a sexual sense, um, I was being seen, but not not for who I was as a person. But all yeah. of a sudden, I became this kind of sex object in a way, and so and and that in a way is not being seen as well. I learned so much about my own childhood, particularly that p period in, in puberty. I actually never thought about it that way before until I heard you describe it. That's that there's this sense of you are now prey. Yes. And I had never articulated it because I felt it in my neighborhood. Everywhere you went, men looked at you as though you were a piece of meat. Yes. Tell me about that first day at camp, because I also had a similar experience when I was put in um, a school in Milwaukee outside of the inner city. And when I was bused, on, I was put on the bus with all the maids in the morning, and I would go out to the suburbs and then come back into the inner city in the evening. It's the first time I realized I was poor. And you talk about <laughs> in this book, I went, oh my God, somebody else had that experience. The first, Jane, we'll get to you in a minute. The first time. <laughs> no, this is fascinating. <laughs> the first, yes. No, the first time I realized I was poor. Yeah. When was it for you? Yeah, it was at that, that summer camp. That and summer all the camp. girls uh, in my bunk, there were like five of us sharing a bunk, and I saw the stuff they were unpacking from their suitcases. It was a two-week uh, stay, and I yeah. had a pair of shorts that, was, that were also going to double as my swimsuit, along with a T-shirt, a couple pair of underwears, an Afro pick, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. And these girls were like, had five different swimsuits, and I talk about this one girl who had underwear, seven pairs of underwear with the days of the week stamped on them. Oh, and, my God, I long uh, for that. <laughs> I, know, I, know. I long for those panties with the days of the week, because then you were really rich yes. if you could have a pair of panties for every day of the week. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And that's when I, I realized that, that I was poor. I love what you said about Jane. It opened my heart to read it. She focused on me taking in everything I said as if it were the most fascinating thing she'd ever heard. She hugged me whenever we crossed paths at the camp. She held my hand when we walked together. This touch, this healthy, loving touch was a revelation. You know what I loved about that? I bet you didn't even know that that's what you were doing. <laughs> no, I didn't know what I was doing. All I know is all the things she taught me. Yeah. You know, I remember asking her once, why was the camp important to you? And she hesitated and she said, I'd never met people before who thought about the future. You know, if you're middle class, you take 
I mean, you just take for granted. Yes, that there is going to be a future and you're going to school and you're going to do yeah. this. And, and so the notion that you think about Saturday night but not the future has informed the whole rest of, you know, the work that I do now with, with adolescents. You think you're helping somebody, but in fact, you're really learning. And yeah. she's taught me so much. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Stories should never be about us, without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. In 1979, world-famous icon and actress Jane Fonda met Mary Williams at Jane's Performing Arts Camp. Mary came from a low-income, dysfunctional family in Oakland, California. Her home and surroundings were riddled with drug users, pimps, and alcoholics. At camp, Jane and Mary took an immediate liking to each other. Four years after they met, Jane invited Mary into her home offering Mary a future and life she could never dream of. What was it about this young girl yeah. that made yeah. you, st because yeah. at a camp there are multiple children, and yeah. I'm sure you're yeah. trying to embrace them all. She, there was something about her. Everyone loved her. She exuded a, 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 a joy and a curiosity and an intelligence and she has a laughter like a cascade of wind chimes, and <laughs> oh my lord! I mean, just she was bubbly uh -huh. for two years, and then she didn't come back, and no one knew why. And when she came back, she was a different person. Tell us what had happened that summer. What had happened? Mm. Um, that uh, summer that I did not go back. Um, I had decided, uh, it was a theater arts camp, by the way, and I had gotten into a lot of acting and doing mm -hmm. monologues, and I thought to myself, I'm going to be an actress. Mm -hmm. So I went to one audition. How old and, were you? Um, 14. Mm -hmm. And it turned out not to be an audition, or it didn't end up that way, and I was assault, sexually uh, assaulted by this person. Um, and I think it was the first time I said, um, all the 
I felt like before then, I was gonna be smart enough to avoid uh, my destiny. And I said, I'm gonna avoid that. I'm not gonna be that kind of person. I'm not gonna be dominated by a man. And you live in a community where teen pregnancies were commonplace, common. yeah. and mm -hmm. I wasn't gonna be that way. But after that rape, I, I didn't believe in myself anymore. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I was foolish to ever think that I could escape that. So you say, so when it happened, I was resigned to my fate. I gave up the fantasy that girls like me could aspire to anything more than early pregnancies, mm -hmm. violent relationships, and welfare. Mm -hmm. My attacker rendered me sullied and unredeemable. Mm -hmm. I gave up on myself and gave myself away. Yeah. And so when you came back to camp the next summer, there was a noticeable difference in, in the, her. The light was gone. The light was gone. She, she mm. didn't want to be near people she didn't couldn't stand to be in a crowd um there were nightmares i mean it was no one quite knew what was going on how did you the, know how did they did somebody come to you and say end of summer she confided in a counselor who told me mm -hmm. and um you know my my then husband tom hayden he said to me she's like a little flame of a candle that's slowly starting to be extinguished mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I know how smart she is, and her, she was failing in school. And I remember calling you over to the house, and I remember the conversation we had. And I said, Lulu, if you bring your grades up at the end of this school year and your mother agrees, come down to Santa Monica, and you will finish your school in Santa Monica, and you will live with us. Was that an offer or an invitation for, for the summer, or was it forever? I just wanted her to become the person that I knew she could be, and I felt that I was going to be able to do that. And you knew there was no way to do that other than removing no, her out. No, I of knew her. I had to get her out of mm -hmm. where she was, mm -hmm. and and um, that she was totally worthy of being given that little hand. She is living resilience. You say on page eighty-four, she threw me a lifeline. She mm -hmm. threw you a lifeline, and you grabbed it. I grabbed it. Did you know that it was a lifeline? Did I you? did. You did? I knew I was dying. Mm. I knew. <laughs> and um, I think there was uh, just enough left in me to want to save myself. Because I think being a panther was part of that. Mm -hmm. I think the panthers taught me to care about myself. Mm -hmm. And that sustained me until it ran out. Growing up as a Black Panther's daughter yeah. gave you a sense of pride oh, yeah. and caring for yourself yeah, yeah. and acknowledging your, oh, it's, yeah. it's a shame that people don't really understand the Panthers. Some people think of them as just Black militants and yes. thugs or whatever. But it was so much more than that. It wasn't about Black supremacy. I never once in my life as a Black woman wanted my skin to be lighter, mm -hmm. wanted my hair to be straighter, wanted my hips to be narrower. Mm -hmm. I. I was raised to love being a black person. Then that's what being raised by the Panthers did. And that's did what being raised by the Panthers did. And it, and, and it was not to hate white people. That was not there. Mm -hmm. that, and a lot of people think that that's mm -hmm. what the Panthers were about, yeah. and they weren't. So tell me what happened. Was there a sense of, I've, I've been saved in that moment when, when Jane Fonda says, come live with us, it if, was your grade, like... <laughs> if your grades improve? Um, it was like a, like the door had, I was in a dark room and the door had cracked open just a little and the light shone in and I just flew. There was no intellectual thought process about it. Mm -hmm. It was all very instinctual. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't even think about it. I thought, absolutely. And 
Mom, I didn't really know her. I could have gone into a situation where, you know, <laughs> she could have been a horrible person when I got there. But that's how desperate I was. I didn't care. I wanted, I wanted anything had to be better than where I was. Mm -hmm. Tell us what that car ride coming to Santa Monica the first time was like. You say my so first good. impression was that L.A. made you want to look up. Yes. I love that. Yeah. I remember how wide the streets were, and I remember how clean they were. But tell me how you felt walking into Jane Fonda's home, black girl from Oakland. Mm -hmm. Do you think, how am I going to fit in here? What, what, I how, did. How is I, this going to work for me? I did. I was nervous. Um, but everybody was so loving to me. What I was very aware of is like when we would sit down to dinner mm -hmm. and we would have discussions and, my, you know, most often my kids would disagree with me. And I remember one day Mary said to me, it's hard for me to tell you this, but I never realized that children could disagree with the parents and not be hit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, everything Not was just hit, get beaten. Beaten, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, everything mm -hmm. was a learning experience. And again, it was a learning experience for me too, because there's things that I just took for granted. After Jane Fonda separated from her second husband, politician Tom Hayden, she was famously wooed by media mogul and billionaire Mouth of the South, Ted Turner. The power couple dated for two years, then married on Jane's 54th birthday. When the Turner and Fonda families came together, Ted, a father of five from two previous marriages, made a lasting connection with Jane's daughter, Mary. Mary calls Ted Turner the closest thing she's ever had to a father. We hit it off from the very beginning and uh, never looked back. She had a beautiful smile and a great personality and was somebody that I felt like I could really grow to love. Well, I feel very complimented that she saw me as the father figure that she never had, and I did, did my best to uh, fulfill her dreams and be a, be a good dad. I'm very proud of the woman that Mary's become. Mary, you say in Lost Daughter that when Jane married her third husband, Ted Turner, that you describe him as the true father, which is so unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> really. Very, very unlikely. I was nervous about Ted, and he turned out to be... You and me both. <laughs> ...one of the most amazing people I've ever met. What was it like that first Thanksgiving at Ted's house? Wasn't it a, like a southern plantation? Ted's plantation. Yes. yes. Ted's it was a, it was plantation. a plantation. Yes. Yes. With I've the, seen with it the dinner bell that you just... ring and an all black staff and Whoa. soul food for days and you know, really? dogs everywhere and a huge portrait of Scarlett O'Hara. It, was, it wow. was very, very, very southern. And five children. And five children. And they were, they were wonderful with you, weren't they? They were awesome. Yeah, they, they love awesome. her. Yeah. Wow. They consider Lulu part, yeah, Mary yeah. part we're, of their family. Brothers and, we just say brothers and sisters. Yeah. Even to Are you day. all still close? Yes. We, yeah. yeah we, really? You're yeah. still close to Ted? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what was it like for you being the black child in this family? Sometimes it was incredibly easy and sometimes not. I, I think the most difficult part was living in Atlanta, which I, I didn't like very much because it's... Which where you all moved after It's where Ted. we all moved um, af after they got married. Mm -hmm. um, I felt the most discrimination coming from other blacks. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever I traveled with them and we had special passes to sit in special places, they would always single me out to ask me, what are you doing here? Where's your pass kind mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. While the white security really just assumed if I'm standing next to her, I must be with her. Mm -hmm. I always had a rough time from black folks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Would you say I'm her daughter? Yes. Would... yes. It sounds ridiculous. You know, yeah. Teta is my stepfather. You know, and they were like, yeah, right. So I can see it sounds unbelievable, but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. who would say that? You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> so. 
When you're in the house, in the family, in dinner, engaged in all the things that families do, would you feel your race? Would you feel your blackness? Would you be connected to that? Or does that drop away? It kind of dropped away. In family, it drops away. Mm -hmm. In our family, I don't think I'm the black one. In, in my Turner family, I don't think I'm the black one. In family, it drops away. Um, it's outside the family, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes that comes in. Yeah. Um, in family, she's just Lulu. Totally. And, and you know, and Ke Ted's ke children completely embraced her. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. Mary was at Ted Turner's Montana ranch when she found out her troubled older sister, Deborah, had been brutally murdered. We're in East Oakland. Thinking that my sister died here, and especially how she died, uh, is very hard. She got mixed up with the wrong people at a really young age. In order to survive, she was a, a prostitute. And she was also addicted to drugs. And um, not very far from here, she was murdered in a very public way. She was pursued by a woman who had a knife and stabbed my sister to death on the street with a crowd of people around cheering that person on. Mary returned to Oakland to attend the funeral. It was her first trip home in almost a decade since she left to live with Jane Fonda. She was a wonderful girl, and I remember her as a wonderful sister. And I'll always have that image in my mind of her. At the time of your sister's death, did you think, wow, that could have been me? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. That absolutely could have been me. You knew that oh. it, had you stayed uh -huh. where you were, yep. in the space and place that you were, yes. that could have easily been you. I would have let any man that intimidated me have me. I didn't want to fight anymore. After that rape? After that rape. Mm -hmm. During this whole time that you're living with uh, Jane and the family, did your family in Oakland, did they try to contact you? Were they in your life at all? Initially, my uncle Landon and my Aunt Jan, I think mm -hmm. they told me they came out and visited for like a, a lunch. I vaguely remember that. But I think as the years went by, it kind of faded, mm -hmm. but not my birth family at all. Not at all? You didn't hear from them? No. Mary went to college and also earned a graduate degree. She worked for various nonprofits and lived in Atlanta to be near Jane. After breaking off an engagement to her fiancé, Mary sold her belongings to embark on a new chapter. She hiked the Appalachian Trail, lived in Alaska, and even journeyed to Antarctica. Today, she lives in Arizona, where she took a break from her career as a park ranger to write this book. I love that the book is filled with your adventures. First of all, <sighs> I remember being with Jane for, I don't know what occasion, and she told me that her daughter was going to be hiking the Appalachian Trail alone. And I was like, well, that is the craziest thing I ever heard. I mean, who does that? And God knows black people don't hike. <laughs> I did a whole show about it. <laughs> and all the black people who do hike, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about 
the g in general, right, we right, don't right. go out hiking and right. camping by right. ourselves. Which yes. is one of the reasons that you wanted to get into yes. this yes. forest service yes. and all that, yes. Yes. to try yes. to figure out why and to encourage black people to go out there. And that wasn't enough. You then went and worked in Antarctica. Yes. Well, listen to this. When you're a park ranger, you ask for your assignments. Yes. I said, where's your next assignment going to be? And she said, well, I asked to go to Antarctica. And I said, why? And she said, because I'm afraid of the cold and I want to confront my fear. Mm -hmm. wow. This is the kind of person she is. Mary realized that all of her adventures were preparing her for the one thing she feared most, seeing her birth mother again. So when you came back, were you ready? I was ready. For your mother? And I, your I, biological mother? I was, because I was about confronting my fears. And so I said, I am going to go back. Because in my mind, over those years, my mother had become, unfairly, a monster. She had become a monster. I didn't see her as a human being who had been through things. And going back helped me to humanize her. And I, I, I really see her, and I really respect her now. Mm. Um, but it wasn't easy. But it wasn't easy. After nearly 30 years of estrangement, Mary reconnected with her birth mother. Mary calls her mama. Mary says her relationship with her birth mother is a work in progress. Mary is also reunited with her aunt, uncle, and cousins. She has not seen her four living siblings or her father. It must have been hard, though. I thought about her birth mother quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, but it might have been very hard for her to realize Jane Fonda has taken my daughter. You know, and I, I would sometimes feel s compassion for her, you know. And I'm glad I got a chance to meet her, and, um, and it went well. But you were nervous when you went to meet her, too, right? I was this just dying happened last of curiosity. Year. It was very recent. I was dying of curiosity, but I was also nervous because, you know, she could hate me. Um, but she was very, very sweet. I said to her, I want you to know how much Mary loves you. And Mary has never disrespected you to me. I wanted her to know that right mm -hmm. away. Jane Fonda has two biological children, Vanessa Vadim from her first husband, French director Roger Vadim, and Troy Garrity from her second marriage to politician Tom Hayden. When Mary moved in with the Fonda family, Vanessa was 15, Troy was just 12. Today, 39-year-old Troy is embracing his family's legacy. He starred in the Barbershop movies and played a crusading reporter opposite Kelsey Grammer in the critically acclaimed show, Boss. Like the rest of the family, Troy calls Mary by her nickname, Lulu. So you were 12 when your mom brought Mary home to live with you. What did you think? I kind of had an unorthodox childhood. There were people always in and out of our household. Mm -hmm. So I, I was used to change. But the one consistent thing in my life and probably most important part of my development was our camp, Laurel Springs. And that's where I met Lulu and hundreds of other kids. And I felt a camaraderie with all of them. I looked for things that I could have in common with people, because oftentimes I didn't. I felt alienated. So there was no discussion like, hey, Mary's going to come down and live with us. She just sort of came down, and it was fine and happy for me because it was somebody that I had a connection with, and I understood. Mm. And she was older, and, and which is always cool when you mm. have an, a teenager who's actually listening to you. Mm -hmm. And Mary was game. 
So, you know, if I said, hey, do you, you know, you want to go look at these baseball cards or buy me some lottery tickets? And she said, yeah, let's do it. And we, <laughs> How did you explain to your friends that you now have a black sister? I never explained it. You never explained it? No, but there wasn't, I don't know. I guess I, you're making me feel very strange because I didn't think there was anything unusual. That's great. You have to understand, too, my parents worked with a compulsion. Yeah. So there was a lot of times when I was left to my own devices or caretakers or left at the camp. Did you ever resent your mom for that time that she was giving to other things, like her acting, like her life? No, I didn't, I, I, I didn't have any resentment towards my mom and her career um, because that's, or my father, because that's all I knew. What was it that made this work? Mary coming into the family, being accepted by all of you, being embraced, being loved. I just feel like we were raised with a sense of like camaraderie. Like if you could make a connection with the person, that's very valuable and you take it. And, and there are people in your life that just sort of inspire you and, and stick. Mm -hmm. Jane, you said something so brilliant in our show, Masterclass. I mean, people were tweeting about it. You said that it took you a long time to realize that we're not meant to be perfect, mm -hmm. but that we are meant to be whole. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that bringing Mary into the family helped complete the wholeness of the family? I feel that she helped me to become whole. You to become but whole. But I didn't realize it until much later. Mm -hmm. You know, you think you're helping somebody. You're mm -hmm. throwing a lifeline right. when, in fact, I think nine times out of ten, you may be the one that's getting more out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that I learned as much or more from her than she did from me. But on a psychological level, she helped complete me. Mm. I love that. Thanks for letting me in. Mm -hmm. Thanks Thank for, you coming. for coming. Thank you for coming in. Yes. Thank you. Next, a fireside chat, for real, with Jane. She still has so much to teach from her remarkable life. I think that you are the model for aging, moving into it Thank with you. wisdom and grace. That moves me so much. Thank yes, you. That yes. makes me happy. When I started to write my memoirs, people said, oh, you know, I mean, what do you have to say to most people? You're mm -hmm. privileged, you're white, you're mm -hmm. wealthy, you're famous, you have mm -hmm. nothing to say. But in fact, if we tell our truth, which yeah. women aren't supposed to do, if you really tell your truth underneath the mm -hmm. surface differences mm -hmm. of class and race, etc., we're basically the same. That's right. And all seeking the same thing. Seeking the same things, needing the same things, and maybe the greatest gift that I will leave behind when I die is learning from my life and being able to use its lessons to help other people. And, the, you know, the feedback I've gotten has been very profound. You said that when you were younger, like before 50, you always thought that by the time you reach this age, if you reach this age, that you would be miserable, decrepit, ugly, and alone. And alone. And just the opposite has happened. Totally. Yes. Totally. And I realized it didn't just happen. It's mm -hmm. because I realize now, and I feel good about it, that I've worked hard all my life to try to get better, to try to understand my mistakes and learn from them and forgive. You know, if you, gosh, if you go through life and you don't learn to forgive, you carry it like a poison. Yeah. And, um, so I've worked hard on all those things, and I'm really happy. You know, I'm, 
I'm happy I can look out here at the California that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. How lucky am I? Wow. Mm -hmm. And I'm working again, you know, mm -hmm. I took 15 years away from it and at 75 I'm back and active and working. Oh yes, because the last time we saw each other was on the set of The Butler. Yeah. Did you think twice before taking on the role of Nancy Reagan? And no. I heard some... She and I are, you know, we have yeah. very different political views, but no, I loved it. I loved it and I wanted to be respectful of her. Yes. Because, you know, I, I may disagree with her politics, but she was a very important first lady and very, very smart. And I found out at the same time that she was happy that I was playing her. Really? Which made me very happy, yeah. yeah. Many times, even today, as we were walking out here, you described this as your third act house yeah. and your third act space. Do you find that frightening or exhilarating? Exhilarating. To know that this is your third act. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. I mean, the fact that I made it and that I'm all in one piece. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I got breast cancer. And that was a good test because I always said I'm not afraid of dying. And I wasn't. I mean, I felt. God, I've just joined a family of millions of women who have gone through this. And how interesting, what a journey this is going to be. And, you know, maybe I'll make it and maybe I won't. I didn't get scared. I hope I don't die, but I'm not scared of dying. Wow. For the last four years, Jane has been in a relationship with legendary music producer Richard Perry. What have you learned about sex in your three acts? <laughs> ah, I've learned that it can remain wonderful even as you get to be my age, and I'm 75. In fact, it can get better, mm -hmm. you know, for a woman especially. I mean, we're lucky, we women, as we get older, because we don't have to worry about the ups and downs of things. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we know our bodies better, and we're less afraid to ask mm -hmm. for what we want. Mm -hmm. And you learn what's important. Like, you know, I really learned that what's really important for me is skin mm -hmm. and kindness. Mm -hmm. And I never realized how important kindness was. You know, my lover is really kind. There's no hidden agenda. I love the fact that you call him your lover, too. Well, I mean, Not, boyfriend is yes, a little yes. weird when you're my age. <laughs> <laughs> Many people are going to see this tonight, and for the first time, hear that you had a daughter who was an African-American. So can you tell us how you feel about how far she has come? I'm so proud of her. I'm so unbelievably proud of her. But I've been proud of her for a long time, and it doesn't surprise me that she's written this book, because I've read other things that she's written. And, you know, she's like my a miracle she, to me. She's like a miracle. And, and I've learned so much from her. But, you know, my life, as Troy pointed out, has been very unorthodox. And so to me, it's perfectly normal to have a black daughter. You know, I mean, from the time I was relatively young, difference has been comfortable for me. Are you at a point in your life where you can do that thing that Derek Walcott says, you s sit and feast on your life? And can you say, wow, I'm proud? I am. Although I worry about pride, <laughs> I do. But yes, being an actress again is what really interests me and being fully present in my relationship. Full circle. Mm -hmm. you, you spend your life exploring, I'm paraphrasing T.S. Eliot, and at the end of all your exploring, you come back to where you started and know it for the first time. So I'm old and I feel really young. <laughs> 
You cannot have a better ending than that, Miss Jane Fonda. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. For you. That. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. <laughs>